How are we doing, church? Doing good? You look great. You guys ready to go to the beach? I hope so. We're going to do this. It's going to be awesome. It's going to mess you up. You'll cry a lot. It'll be great. And then, and then we'll run to the beach and celebrate life change like crazy. If you wonder why everybody's in the bathing suit or some people, that's why, because we're going to do something awesome. If you've never been to one of our beach baptisms, you should go. It's great. Uh, before we get there, though, we, we're going to study the book of Judges. We're brand, beginning a brand new series. And so grab your Bibles, turn them on, scroll to the book of Judges, or grab the one that's in front of you and find the book of Judges. It's the seventh book of the Bible. And the reason we've called this thing again is because it is descriptive of not only the book of Judges, but also... Also, a lot of our lives. I mean, if you're honest, I know this is a church, no place for that kind of thing. But if you're honest, you ever found yourself in the same place again and again and again? And you get to that place and you're like, what am I doing here again? I promised I would never do this again. You know, you ever make those promises to God? God, if you will just let her forgive me, make the puking stop, forgive the bill, whatever it is, God, I promise I'll never do it again. And yet, over and over and over, we make the same promises, we have the same regret, we find ourselves in the same situation, and then we come back. And some of you are on your way back. You kind of had like you're like on a 10-year detour again trip, right? And you were close to Jesus a long time ago, and then you took a little break, maybe college, and now here you are. You're back. Welcome back. Well, it's kind of what the book of Judges is all about. And I have a PhD in this sort of theology. You know what it's called? It was called summer camp. Anybody ever go to summer camp? Anybody? Remember those days? All right. So summer camp for us was kind of that, that same thing every single year. Last night at camp, we would all show up, and the guy would preach and preach and preach, and we, we only had about three hours of sleep for the whole week, so we were ready to dedicate our lives to a Christmas tree. It didn't matter, right? And then they'd fill you up on sugar and whatever, and then they'd play some music and say, come on and, and, and you know, ask Jesus to come in your heart, and we would do it. I'd do it every single year, every single year. And at camp on the last night, through tears and snot and hugs and promises, I would commit my life, God, I'm never going to be the same again. In fact, we sang a song called I'm Never Going to Be the Same Again. And, and we would sing it. <clears throat> and the problem is, is we would come just as we are, and we'd leave just as we were while we sang the song just as I am. That's kind of what would happen, because we would make these emotional decisions, and we would I, would, I, would, I mean, I promise, at the campfire, and I did everything they asked me to do. I wrote my sins down, I nailed them to a cross, I burned them up one year, I threw them in a lake. I mean, I, whatever it took, I was in. And then I would be like, God, I am ne- when I get home, when I get home, I'm going to break up with her, I'm going to respect them, and I'm going to quit doing everything. And I'm telling you, I had several successful weeks in July every year. And then by about the time... Football practice started, the language went, came back, and the friends came back. And by October, I was like, when is camp? I need camp again. And the problem, <clears throat> the big problem was a total misunderstanding of the gospel. You see, I thought, I just thought, I guess, I guess this is the Christian life, you know, and I wish I had a better theological term for it, but the way I've come to term it is just kind of this crappy cycle of Christianity where it goes from just promises to regret, remorse, and then resolution. Repeat. Regret, remorse, I'm going to try harder. Resolution. If that, by, does it sound familiar? I mean, anybody been on that journey before? You come in here, you get all filled up, and then you're like, God, I promise from now on. And then you find yourself back there. Well, the book of Judges is for us. Judges chapter 1, 
verse 1. We are going to talk about how to break that cycle of crappy Christianity, which is not, which is not what God has in store for you. 1-1. One, one. says, after the death of Joshua, the people of Israel <coughs> inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hands. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you to the territory allotted to you. And so Simeon went with him. And then Judah went up. And the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. So it's starting out pretty good. There's one little slight twist. God said, Judah, you go. And he's like, okay, hey, Simeon, come with me. So he's going to kind of add his own little twist to God's command in his life, but it turns out pretty okay. And they found Adonai Bezek. That just means the king of Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek, and they fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him, and they caught him, and they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Do you know why? I have no idea. I didn't have time to look it up. I don't know what that means. I just think maybe they cut off his thumbs, and they put quarters all over the floor and said, try to pick it up. And he's like, no, and he couldn't. All right? Maybe that's, what, that's how they torture people. I'm not sure. We'll go with that until whenever. Verse 7, <clears throat> and Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table, as I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. Let me just say, as we walk through the book of Judges, a lot of people are going to die, and it's going to push up against our Western sensibilities. We're going to say, how in the world could God command, command one nation to, to kill the people of another nation? There's a couple of things here. One is that's how God maybe worked in the Old Testament. Our new king is not a king of just a nation. He is the king of the church, and we are supposed to love our enemies and pray for our enemies and, and dole out ju- uh, mercy and peace. But here the thing is, too, there are no innocent people in Canaan. Uh, Leviticus 18, Numbers 9, Numbers 18, let us know that it was a pretty wicked and depraved place that was rape and murder and child sacrifice and all of these kinds of things. And God was using Israel as a hand uh, uh, to, to dole out his justice. And, and I understand that, that there are women and children and it was not their fault, but this is just true in our broken world, that there's always collateral damage and sin. There just always is. You know multiple families. You may be part of a family, and it was not your fault, but the sin of other people you really had to pay the price for. And the thing that we can lean into is that God always deals justly because he is perfectly just. And though we see dimly in this earth, there will be a day where we see clear, and God will make all things new, and he will always deal justly with his people. And so it looks, like, it looks like in the book of Judges that they're starting out being obedient, right? They, they go and they take over this one land, and then by the time you get to verse 19, it kind of starts slipping a little bit. Verse 19, it says, And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. That's good. <clears throat> but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. He could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. It's almost like the nation of Israel is writing their own, they're putting their own kind of spin on what was happening. They're saying, God, we want to obey you. We want to move in and take over the promised land. But some of the things that you ask us to do is hard. It's really hard. Like driving out the, the, the chariots of iron, that's just tough. Verse 20, and, and Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak, verse 21, but the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. And so the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. So the question really is this. 
They could not or they would not. You see, which one was it? They could not or they would not. Because the, the reality is, is partial obedience is really just disobedience. And what they're saying here is, God, um, we're, okay, uh, we're okay doing part of what you said. Move into the promised land, the land flowing of milk and honey. We want to live in houses we didn't build. We want to drink out of cisterns that we didn't dig. We want to eat out of refrigerators that we didn't stock. But some of the stuff that you've asked us to do, God, it, it's just hard. So I don't know if we can do it. And they begin to say, but you know, it's okay. I mean, it's pretty close. I know it's not exactly the way God said to do it, but it's pretty close. It's kind of working for us. If you skip down to verse 27, you get a little summary of all, a bunch of different tribes. And it says, And Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheen and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages. And I don't have the time to read all the tribes, but they're all there, the Klingons and the Ewoks and the Gators, you know, all the people that they're trying to kick out of the promised land. Verse 28, and it says, but, but when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they didn't drive them out completely. And then if you just read like the first line of the rest of the paragraphs, it's like, and Ephraim didn't drive them out, and Zebulon didn't drive them out, and Asher didn't drive them out, and Naphtali didn't drive them out. And not only did they not drive them out, but when they grew strong enough, they said, not only are we not going to drive them out, but we're going to make them work for us. And then the question is, they could not or they, they would not. You see, here's the reality. Every single one of the tribes that they allowed to stay there over time grew up and grew strong and tried to overthrow and kill them and destroy them. Every single one. And the reality is this, church, you and I need to begin to see our lives like the promised land of Canaan that God has given us. And <clears throat> the sin in our lives are like these tribes. And you cannot domesticate sin and you can't tame sin, sin in our lives is there to kill us and to, to destroy us and to ruin our lives. And what begins to happen is when we, we begin to follow after Jesus, and Jesus says, I want you to be holy like I am holy. I want you to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you say, well, I get you, God, except for this area over here. You see, the moment you surrender your life to Christ, it's not like sin just shows itself to the door, especially when you make a guest room for it. And I am not trying to beat you up over your individual sins. I am not here to condemn you. That is not what I do. But, but there's no way I could rightly love you and shepherd you and have us not point out where there are things creeping in your attic that want to find you asleep one night and come and slit your throat. And that's what sin wants to do every single time. And what begins to happen, though, is we start saying, man, I can't do that. One of my friends, this pastor in Jamaica, he says this. You know, a lot of times when we begin to rationalize why we can or can't do something that God has told us to do, he says, he says instead of obedience, we rationalize. And rationalize is just telling ourselves rational lies. And you see, it's like trying to, trying to domesticate our sin. And then not only that, we even try to make it work for us. Hey, listen, I know, the Bible, I know the Bible says that we're supposed to be honest, but if I'm honest at work, I can't make the kind of money that I make. I know that if I'm honest in my relationship, she's, still, she's not going to stay with me. So I'm actually going to take this sin, and I'm going to make it forced labor and work for me. And I am telling you, one day it will rise up and try to take you out. I am not trying to beat you up over your sin, but wake us all up to strongholds in our life. So the question is this. Where are you saying I can't and God is saying you won't? And here's the thing. I can't answer that question for you. Only the real preacher of 1122, which is the Holy Spirit. 
that he can tell you where you're saying, I can't, but you're actually saying, I won't. Three areas that I hear a whole lot is this. One is sexual immorality. I mean, we live in a culture that says, well, I know what God says about sexual immorality, but I, I can't. I mean, I can't. And in fact, that doesn't even really apply to me. I know it applies to the kids, so keeps teaching it to the teenagers. But listen, I'm 40 years old, and I used to be married, and I'm going to be married again one day, and so I'm just going to do what I want with who I want when I want. And, Pastor, the reason that God's, God's rules in that area don't apply to me is because, you know, we're in love. And, and our situation is unique. Or financially, it just makes more sense for us to, to cohabitate right now. And I'm just telling you, I'm just trying to warn you from a position of love that God wants better for you. Check this out. God is the inventor and creator of sex. He actually knows how it works better than you. And you're like, are you sure? I promise. Do you want to know if we serve a good God? How about this? He invented sex. That's not how we, we, we don't have to create children that way. He could have made your toes just swell up. And, oh, look. Oh, we got 10 kids. Oh, boy, we're going to need a minivan. That's kind of how he, he could have made it up. And then one day in heaven, he's like, I have an idea. And the angels are like, another rainbow? He goes, it's better than a rainbow. All right. I mean, that's what he did. But because he is the author of it, he knows how it works best. And when we say, as here's, now we would never say this, but, but by our actions, we stiff arm God and we say, God, my ways are better than your ways. Or we say, God, you, hey, listen, I'm in college right now. Why don't you just kind of turn your head? I'll be back in a little while. And we say, God, I, I, can't, I can't do what you say there. And he goes, no, 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 you won't. Another one that, that's true for all of us is unforgiveness. The Bible says forgive as you have been forgiven. The truth is forgiving people forgive people. But we'll say, no, 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 I can't forgive her. Pastor, if you just knew what she has done, then you would say, well, that, you know, that doesn't count for me. If you knew what was going on in here, then you would know, then you would know that I don't have to forgive her. I've even heard people tell me this. If God wants me to forgive them, he, he, he's just going to have to change my heart. Yeah, you gotta, you've got to surrender your heart before he can begin to change it. And the reality is, is what you're saying is, um, God, I don't trust you because they might get away with it. Another one is a lack of generosity. A lack of generosity. And any time you start talking about money in church, people start puckering up. They're like, no, he isn't. Oh, yes, he is. Here it comes. And here's the thing. You know who doesn't mind people talking about generosity in church? Generous people. They're like, praise God, all right? But there's a whole lot of people, when it comes to the issue of money, we're like, no, that's like an iron chariot in my life. I know the Bible commands us to give first and give best to him because he is first and he first loved us by giving us his best. But, and here's what people will tell me, I'm pastor, when I have more money, I'll be more generous. Are you serious? No way. In fact, statistically, the more money you make, the less you give percentage-wise. That's just true. And then when people start making a little bank, they go, well, the church just wants my money. No, but see, let's be honest. You want your money. And I'm not saying give it to me, but be generous towards the things of the Lord. And instead, we say, no, 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 God, you keep your hands off of this area of my money because that's mine. If you really think that more is yours, then you don't know, you don't know the creator of the universe. That it all all belongs to him, and by his grace, he allows us to manage or steward it for a little time. And what can begin to happen is you and I can stiff-arm the almighty God. That we can stiff-arm God, and we can, no, God, get out of my face. I got this. I got this. And essentially what we're saying, whether it's in relationships or sexual morality or in our finances, essentially what we're saying is, God, I don't trust you. I'm going to do what I want with who I want when I want, and you ain't the boss of me. 
and I'm going to step in and I'm going to obey you partially the things that I like. Like I'm going to sing your songs and I'm going to close my eyes and lift a hand and I'm going to do some of that stuff. But when it comes to areas that you call me to obedience in and they're tough, I don't think I could do that. And so this is why. This is why, first of all, you and I have to preach the gospel to every area of our life, to every nook and cranny of our life. Because if I didn't mention one, an area that you're struggling in, then there's just some other area, me included, where, where we're not believing God for his best. And we're saying, I don't think I can do that. And this is the recipe that led Israel for the whole book of Judges to begin to go through this cycle over and over and over. And the cycle was they would be disobedient. It would lead to their destruction. They would cry out to God, and then God would deliver them. And then they would just repeat and so they would, they would make resolutions. We're never going to do that again. And then they would disobey, and it would lead to regret and remorse and repeat over and over again. So what do you do about it? Chapter 2, verse 1, it says this. Now, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal. Gilgal is important. Gilgal is where God reinstituted uh, uh, the covenant with his people under Joshua's reign. They went, uh, the angel goes up from Gilgal. To Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt, and I brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Underline that. That's a promise of God that we're going to come back to. I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenants with the inhabitants of this land, and you shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. You see, when they're saying, God, we couldn't try and drive them out, he's like, no, 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 no. No, no, no. You wouldn't drive them out. There's a difference there. And then he says, what is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. Folks, this is the result of worshiping idols. Whether it's little false statues thousands of years ago or it's anything temporary that we treat as ultimate in our current days. It, instead of serving the God that saves Israel was serving the little gods that enslave. That is what an idol is. An idol is anything of this world that promises us what only God can bring us. Promises us safety and promises us security and promises us eternal happiness. And the only one that can bring that is an eternal God that is an above, above the things of this created world. And what begins to happen is what's here is they chased after a culture and then they were enslaved by it. It's what our world does with whatever it is. It, it, it baits you down a road and then blames you for walking down it. And it ends in bondage and that is not God's plan for you. Verse 4 is it says, And as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and they wept. Why? Because it was like the last night of camp. They've got incredible remorse. They feel so bad for the things that they've done. And so what they do is they have a whole lot of emotion. They get this huge emotional response. And they promise, God, we promise we'll do better. We promise we'll do better. And it says, and so they wept. Verse 5, and they called the name of that place Bochum. That means cries a lot. That's what it means, the places of weeping. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. And so it begins. For the rest of the book of Judges, you get this cycle of remorse and resolution, repeat. Remorse and resolution, repeat. And I'm telling you, it sounds like the modern day church. That you get to this place, you're like, oh, how did I end up here again? God, I promise, from now on, I'm gonna try harder, do better. Verse six, 
It says, and when Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnaharis, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. Verse 10 might be one of the saddest verses in the whole Bible. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. That means they died. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Think about this. Y'all, we studied Judges from, I mean, we studied Joshua like for a whole semester, right? From, from January to Easter. Remember everything that happened under the reign of Joshua? I mean, Joshua, they were the people that walked through the Jordan. Remember the Jordan split open and they walked through. They marched around Jericho seven times and then blew the trumpet. And the walls fell down and all the people rejoiced. You remember all the mighty works that was done when Joshua was leading? And one generation later, the next generation, the Bible says that that generation did not know the Lord or the work that he had done. Now, I don't think it means that they didn't know that it happened. I'm sure in Sunday school and at Vacation Bible School, they went over all the miracles that had happened. But they didn't know it. The word here in Hebrew for know is yada, yada. It's used in places like this. And Adam knew Eve, and Eve bore a son. Now, that's knowing. You know what I mean? There's like, oh, I know her, and I know her. That's what that word yada means. And so what it means is, is that, that, the, that the children that grew up under Joshua, that they did not have a, an intimate relationship with God. They just knew stuff about him. And folks, listen to 1122. If you don't think this could happen to us, then we're toast. If we, we begin to take our eyes off the gospel, and we could end up just like that. That God could be doing amazing things. I mean, you want to see amazing? Go to the beach after this service today and watch over 300 people publicly profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and watch them get dunked in the ocean and watch the whole beach just explode with celebration of what God is doing. And we take our eyes off the gospel, and in a generation it could be over. You see... What can happen is one generation can know the gospel, the next generation can assume the gospel, and then the following generation has forgotten the gospel. And here's why I warn us, because I know we think what's happening at 1122 is awesome, and it is, praise God. But there was a church in the, in the New Testament, the church at Ephesus, and it was awesome. If you remember back in Acts chapter 19 is when it took off and God began to save so many people in this town of Ephesus that it changed the socioeconomic construct of the whole city. And this wasn't like a little, a little rinky-dink, like this wasn't Palatka. This was a big old city, all right? And if you're from Palatka, that's why you moved to Jacksonville. Can we just be honest? All right, so it's a great place to be from. I'm from Dillon, I know, all right? And I know God is doing amazing things. And last year we were the third fastest growing and we're putting locations everywhere we can. I get all that. But what happened in Ephesus is so many people were getting saved, there was, a, there was a, a temple to this god called Artemis, and they would make these idols, and it was the number one, number one form of income in that city. So many people were getting saved that they quit buying the idols, and the idol makers um, blew up in a revolt, in a demonstration at Ephesus, and it changed the socioeconomic construct of the whole city. I know things are going awesome at our sports bar and in our, in our Walmart, but we have not changed the socioeconomic construct of all of Jacksonville, have we? And then by the time you get to the book of Revelation, Jesus sends a letter to the, to the church at Ephesus, and he goes, hey, great doctrine, good work, but you've lost your first love. And you can't go, have you heard from the church of Ephesus lately? Uh-uh, the door's shut. It's not there anymore. 
You take your eyes off of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we could do exactly what the nation of Israel does. And then verses 11 through 18 is a summary. It's a summary of everything that happens in the book of Judges. It says this. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. In other words, I'm going to do, do it my way, God. I'm going to do what I want with who I want when I want. And so they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them. And they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. God is love, but he will be provoked to anger. God is a jealous God. This does not mean that he is jealous of you. He did not look at any of you today when you drove up and he's like, God, look at that SUV, I wish I could get one like that. That is not what God thinks. He did not look at you at your CrossFit class and be like, oh man, she is so fit and I'm forever. I mean, I have got some work. That is not how God operates. But he is jealous for you like mamas, like you're jealous for your babies. Like if somebody comes to harm or destroy or, or, or do something evil to your babies, you know how like mama bear comes out and all y'all mama like, Hur. that's the kind of jealousy God has for us. And so anytime we worship anything other than him, he understands that that leads us to destruction and he wants to lead us to life. And so it says, he's, they provoke the Lord to anger and they abandon the Lord and they serve the Baals and the Ashtoreth. And so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them because that's what plunderers do. And he sold them into the hand of the surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Verse 15, and whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. Underline this, here's another promise of God. Earlier, God said, I promise I will never forsake my covenant with you. And now God promises, I will judge the wicked and my hand will be against you. They seem like conflicting promises, don't they? How could both of those things simultaneously happen? How could you not obey God and still take the promised land? We'll come back to that. It says, and they were in terrible distress. And then the Lord raised up judges, that's why it's called judges, who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them, yet... They did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods, and they bowed down to him. Here's, my, here's our word again, right? Hoard. They whored after other gods. And you think, why does the Bible use such inflammatory language like whore? And some of you are like, why do you keep saying it? I'm just trying to read the Bible to you, people, all right? <laughs> now, here's the thing. First of all, here's why I think God uses the word whore over and over and over in the Scriptures. First of all, let me just tell you this, and I know if you've got your kids here, let me just tell you, the Bible is not a safe place for children, all right? Especially the book of Judges, I would check them into New Gen, especially for this series, all right? And here's why, because when God talks about sin, he talks about it at a level that we don't talk about it. When we talk about sin, we don't even like to use the word sin. I mean, if other people are doing it, it's sin. If we're doing it, it's a struggle. You ever notice that? If, if you're lying, you're a sinner, but, but I've just made a mistake. It's just a mistake. Nobody's perfect. And so Jesus used this covenantal marriage language because he loves us so much and he is in a love covenant with us. The closest thing we have on earth would be a marriage. And you, some of you don't have to imagine this. You've experienced this. But imagine your spouse has been unfaithful and they come home and be like, oh, I'm so sorry, but I just had this struggle and I made a mistake. You'd be like, oh, no. That's how God talks about it. That our sin is so egregious, no matter where it is, because we think good sin, bad sin. No, no, no. 
There's just sin that deserves death. That's the only kind of sin there is. And so our sin is so egregious towards the Lord, somebody had to die for it. And yet he loves us so much that he was willing to be the someone. And so that's why that word is there. So we're not talking about little, little games here. It says, yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. And they soon turned aside from their way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge. And he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of their judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. One of the things that we're going to see throughout the book of Judges is the incredible mercy of God towards his children. That, that, that one of the messages, probably the main message of Judges, is God's relentless pursuit of his rebellious people. God's relentless pursuit of his rebellious people. It's just the character and nature of God. That he loves us so much that he'll never quit running after us and pursuing us. <clears throat> There's a whole book of the Bible, one of the minor prophets, the dude's name Hosea. And he's a prophet. I mean, he's like what I do, okay? He's a professional God follower. And God tells him to go marry a prostitute named Gomer. Now, anytime, if God tells you to marry a girl named Gomer, you know it's not going to be awesome. And so he marries her. And she does what she does, and she cheats on him. She's unfaithful to him. And then God commands him, Gomer, I mean him, Hosea, the prophet, go back and pursue her. And at this point, she's being sold on the auction block, and he goes and sells everything he has to buy her back. And he says, that is a picture of my love. God is so merciful, so merciful. I think about this, and I think, you know what, God, if I were you and the people kept doing the same thing, I mean, if they kept just disobeying, which led to destruction, and then they cried out to me at some point, I'd be like, I got it up to here. And I look at this, and I'm like, you stupid Hebrews, what is wrong with you? And then I look up, and I see me in the mirror and go, uh-oh, because I think that's me. And God is so patient, and God is, God is so loving, and his love endures forever, and he never gives up. I mean, I don't know if you can figure this out. But, like, when I fill out spiritual gifts assessment, I don't score real high on the mercy section of the test, all right? My mercy meter is so stinking low that if you get around me and you have a lot of mercy, mine will kill yours. That's how it goes, okay? I'll suck it out of you. That's just how I am. And when I see this, I'm like, God, how could you keep putting up with people like this? And then I think, well, but I'm so glad you put up with me because I am not patient like that. I'm reminded of it every week when I coach Little League Baseball. Now, it's pretty good. It's like real baseball. It really is. Our kids, me and some of the staff guys, our kids are on the baseball team right now. They had a game yesterday, and, and, and JP catches, and he threw a kid out at second base, right? He's trying to steal, and he threw him out, and it's like real baseball. And, you know, the Bible says, thou shalt not steal. So he's just trying to be like Jesus, all right? So that's just true. So it's like a real baseball game. But, man, you back up a few years in T-ball, oh, my goodness. I'm trying to just you know, serve our community, invest in the lives of these young boys growing up into young men. And then you get out there, and I, that's how I lost all my hair, I think. I'm pretty sure that's how it happened. Because you're standing on the field, and you're just trying to get them to look in the same direction so the ball doesn't hit them in the face or in the ear while they're looking over there. They're like, oh, squirrel, boom. You know, it, it's dangerous. And then you look around, and you're like, where'd our right fielder go? We need a right fielder. And the center fielder's like, snow cone. He went to get a, get a snow cone. You can't get a snow cone during the game. Then you, whose kid is that? And you meet the parents, you're like, oh, yeah, get a snow cone. It's probably better for our whole team. 
the thing I'll never forget, I'm standing there at, like in the field, you know, trying to keep them all corralled. And I look over at my third baseman, who is a pretty athletic kid. He's taking off his glove, and he's laying face first in the sand of the infield with his hands by his side. And he's using the brim of his hat to just scoop up a little mound of dirt. <laughs> while a t-ball game is happening around him. And I started to yell at him, and I thought, you know what? That might be the safest place for the kid. But I'm, I want to go, what are you doing? And then I think God Almighty looks at his church, and there we are, hands down, laying down on the third baseline, just, what? God's relentless pursuit of his rebellious people. So... I think we've diagnosed the problem. If you're honest, we get there quick. How? How do we get there, and what do we do about it? I, I put a TV up here, and here's why, because I've taught this a whole bunch of times, and think about this more like Bible study than a sermon. If, I could, if, if you all met with me one-on-one in my office, I would draw some diagrams to, to show us that I think we have a truncated view of the gospel. A lot of us, a lot of us think the gospel... The gospel is just like our ticket to heaven. The gospel is like the initial doorway that we, that we walk through. That the gospel is for our justification and not our sanctification. And so the way it looked like for me is this. It's like there's us. And by the way, I'd like to thank Pastor Ryan Stone for modeling for this. Have y'all seen Pastor Stone lately? He's lost about 100 pounds or something. Doesn't he look great? But his head is still the same size. So he looks like that. That's what he looks like. That's what happens, all right? And so anyway, he looks great. And so there we are. And you get to this place where you meet Jesus, where you know you need your sins forgiven, where you know that you've been the boss of you, and you get to a place where you say, okay, you cry out to God, just like the Israelites did. You cry out to God and like, God, save me. And he does. But then what I was taught is that the gospel, again, was like the front door into Christianity. But then as you, as you mature in your faith, the religious activity increases. And then you move into the deep stuff, and you get really, really busy doing stuff. And we were taught that you're saved by grace, but you better get to work right after that. And so as the religious activity increases and increases and increases, the gospel begins to get smaller and smaller and smaller in the rearview mirror. And we're actually moving further and further away from a relationship with Jesus, and instead we substitute religious activity. And then typically while that's going while that's going on, our morality is totally going into the other direction. And then we find ourselves in a place, it could be a service like this, or it could be saturated, or it could be summer camp for me when I was a kid. And we think, you know what, man, I'm so remorseful for all the bad things I've done, and i got to start over, and I would rededicate my life to Jesus. I rededicated my life to Jesus every summer from 14 to 24, and if I could have done it five times, I'd have done it five times this summer. And what begins to happen is I'm not... I, I haven't positioned myself where I'm trusting the finished work of Christ. I'm just believing Jesus for salvation, and then I think the rest is up to me. And we began to move further and further away from the gospel and into the deep stuff. And then what begins to happen is this cycle just begins to happen over and over and over. We replace a relationship with Jesus with religious activity, and the cross gets smaller and smaller and smaller the farther we get away from it. And here at 1122, man, beach baptism will bring you back, and saturated will bring you back, and Christmas Eve will bring you back, and Easter will bring you back. And so what do you do? This is, this is what happens. This is what happens in the life of the nation of Israel, and this is what happens over and over and over 
in our own lives if we don't have an understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the way it looks in our life is this, is that it starts by surrender. And I don't mean like legitimately surrendering your whole life to the Lordship of Christ. I'm talking about that emotional decision where you just make a promise. God, I promise I'm gonna try harder. And then if we don't consistently preach the gospel to ourselves and stay saturated in the gospel, then then pretty quickly we go from, all right, God, we're surrendered to you to self-reliance, which is I got this. God, I know you said drive them all out of Canaan, but you know what? Those chariots of iron are tough, and so I don't think I'm going to do that anymore. And God, I know you said do sex this way and money this way and relationships this way, but you know what? I got this. I got this. And I'm going to listen to some of what you say to do, but maybe not all of what you say, because you know what? I think in the end, I think I know better. And we begin to rely on ourselves. This is the part that gets uncomfortable. And then, this is maybe the worst. Then we move into self-deception. This is scary because we think, you know what? I think it's actually working. I mean, I can have a little something on the side. Nobody knows. Nobody's getting hurt. They're just pictures. Nobody knows. Nobody's going to get hurt. We begin to deceive ourselves to say, I can do what I want with who I want, when I want, as long as nobody gets hurt. The lie in that is you always get hurt and you are a somebody. And you're a somebody that Jesus died for and you matter a lot. And nobody in your disciple group believes it's working for you. And nobody, your parents don't think it's working for you no matter how old you are. And they love you and know you like no one does. And then the sermons just ruin you every week. And that daggum Holy Spirit, boy, he will wear you out if you're not careful, right? And I see us. We come in here and we think, oh, gosh, if I can just hold out for 15 more minutes, it won't get on me. And I can keep doing what I want to do. And that's that self-deception. And then before you know it, it goes from self-deception to the self-inflicted wound. And you think, how did I get here? What happened? It was just one drink. It was just one puff. It was just one meeting. I know she's not my wife, but it was just one dinner. What was it? And then we think, I got this. And then you finally get to this point and you go, I ain't got this. And, and we're, like the, we're like the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, who's an Orthodox Jewish boy feeding pigs in a pig trough. It was like the wor- big, most embarrassing thing he could ever do. And you think, what am I going to do now? How did it get here? And it could be relationally, financially, internally, whatever it is. And then our self-preservation begins to just kick in. And we think, well, I gotta get me out of here. What am I gonna do? Oh, I know, I can cry out to the Lord and maybe he will help me. And then what begins to happen is what happens to you and me if we're not centered in the gospel of Jesus Christ is it's just resolution, remorse, repeat. I'm gonna try so much harder this time. How did I get here again? And then it's just exhausting. So what's the solution? I think we have to have have a gospel-centered life where we understand, here's Pastor Stone again, all right? And you get to that place where you surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ. This is called justification, where, where Christ's righteous acts on the cross count for you in the payment for your sin. But the gospel is not just a ticket to get into heaven the gospel is also the ingredients by which you and I are, are to, to look more and more and more like Jesus. The theological term for that is sanctification. That we allow the gospel to be the hammer and chisel, to chisel everything in our life away that doesn't look like Jesus. And so when we get saved, when we come to know Christ as our Lord and Savior, two things simultaneously happen. First of all is our awareness for the whole, holiness of God begins to increase 
through Bible study and, and being a covenant member of the church and being fellow, having fellowship with other believers and singing worship songs and all of those things, you begin to realize that God is even more beautiful and more magnificent and more holy and more omnipotent that you ever, than you ever realized, that he actually is a good, good father, regardless of how your dad is, that he's a good, good father and that he loves his children and your understanding of the holiness of God gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And you feel like Isaiah in chapter 6. You just, when, you, when you come into his presence, you just want to fall down on your face. And then simultaneous to that, our understanding of our own sin, our own depravity, our own crookedness goes deeper and deeper and deeper. And we think, oh my goodness, I'm not just a mistaker in need of a life coach. I'm a sinner in need of a savior. And, and my problem is not just t- I tell lies. I'm a liar. My, my, is not, my problem is not just that I think too much of myself. I actually want the whole world to revolve around me. That we begin to get to this place where we realize the heart of the problem is a problem with my own heart. I am a great sinner, but praise God, I have a greater Savior. And when, as this gap goes bigger and bigger and bigger, by the gospel of Jesus Christ, we begin to understand there's only one thing that can fill that gap, and that is the gospel itself. And as our awareness of, the, of God's holiness grows and as our awareness of our sin grows, what grows in our life is the cross or the gospel does not get further behind us in the rear view, but it gets bigger and bigger and bigger in my life. I've been a Christian for a while. I've been in ministry for a couple decades now. And the thing that I cannot get over, that, that my understanding of the holiness of God and my understanding of my own depravity, the thing that I cannot get over is that he would love me enough to take my place. I mean, it overwhelms me. It overwhelms me. Sometimes it catches me so off guard. There was a few months ago, we had a, a worship guy in here that we were trying out for one of our worship leaders at our new locations, and they told me, they were like, pay close attention to him, he's going to sing this song. And he was singing Amazing Grace, you know, when we do it the fast way, and we're singing it, and he just sings this word, I've, I've, we've sung it a million times, but, when, but he just sings, that you would take my place. And I'm supposed to be evaluating this guy up here and if he's good enough to come work here. You know what I mean? I'm supposed to be like in work mode. And I'm sitting right over here and I just hear these words that you would take my place and I I begin to understand more of God's holiness and my sin and I just lose it. I'm crying like a girl that just watched the eighth grade notebook over here on the second song. And afterwards, they're like, how'd he do? I'm like, I don't know. He took my place and that's just all I can handle. All right, that's just what I do. When we do this, we have a deeper and deeper and deeper understanding of the gospel. And when we sin, not if we sin, but when we sin, we can run to the Father. We don't have to run from him. And you look at this and you say, okay, so that's how the gospel grows deeper and deeper and deeper in in my life. Now, now, great diagram, right? I'm sure you could redraw it on a napkin pretty quickly. And hopefully it will help us to understand the fullness of the gospel and not truncate the gospel into just our ticket to heaven. But, but the gospel is a truth that not only justifies us, but sanctifies us, helps us grow to be more and more like Jesus. But you say, but how do I do this? How do I practically do this in my life? Well, you see, what What that cycle offers us is remorse and resolution. What the gospel offers us is this word, repent. Repent. You see, to repent is a a directional word. Martin Luther, I hope you know who Martin Luther is. Martin Luther started the Protestant Reformation. In 1517, uh, he nailed the 95 Theses on the Wittenberg Wittenberg Castle Church in Germany on, on, on October 31st, 1517, and it sparks the Protestant Reformation. And you know what happened? He was a Catholic guy. And you know what happened? 
This is a problem. He got a hold of a Bible and he started reading it. And he said, what was all that tradition you've been talking about? Where's the penance? I don't see any of this in here. And, and so, essentially, he started the Protestant Reformation. He wrote the 95 Theses. He basically said, I got 95 problems and the Pope is one. That's kind of what it was. And he nailed it up on the, on, the, on the door of this church, and it started. That's why there's Protestant churches now. And here's the number one. Here's this first thing. He said this. He said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. When, the, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. You see, repentance is different than remorse and resolution. Repentance is changing direction, and when we sin, we run to God and not from him. My friend J.D. Greer is a pastor in North Carolina. He says this. He says, conversion isn't sinless perfection. It's a new direction. That, that conversion is not sinless perfection. It's a new direction. One of the things I do here at our church is we train up um, church planners to go all, really all over the United States. And we take church planners through this uh, curriculum called the Gospel-Centered Life. And as I'm supposed to be discipling these, these men, this curriculum has just been discipling me like crazy. And in it, it talks about what daily repentance or what, what Gospel-Centered repentance looks like. Now, again, this is not remorse and resolution. This is not, I feel bad and I'm going to try harder. This is, what do you do when you sin? And it's based on not your good works, but the finished work of Jesus. And what happens is, the guys that write this kind of stuff, the men and women that write this kind of stuff are super smart theologians with PhDs, etc., and then I have to kind of like interpret it. One of the biggest comments and compliments I get as a preacher here is you come up and say, Pastor, we just love the way you take complex, complex ideas and make them simple. And I'm like, well, thank you so much. And the reality is, is I'm just a simple man. And I have to kind of translate it for myself to begin to understand. And so they put five steps of repentance in here. The first one says, acknowledge that you have sinned against God. I have to say it this way. Just admit it to a just God. Just admit it to a just God. You see, and a lot of times, again, if you, if you sin, I call it sin. But if I sin, I like to call it a struggle or a mistake. And you remember what Adam and Eve did when God confronted them about their sin? They ran. They hid. They covered up their nakedness. And they blamed one another. I mean, think about it. There is only three people in the garden other than Adam. There's God, there's Eve, and the snake. And Adam blames two of them when God confronts him. What have you done? He goes, this woman that you gave me, she made me do it, all right? And so, a lot of times we still do the same thing when we sin. We run, we hide, we try to cover it up, and we blame someone else. We say, I can't drive out the chariots of iron. And God's like, no, you just won't. And so it starts with this, that you just admit your sin to a just God. Step two, according to this curriculum, is confess forms of false repentance and selfish regret. I don't know what that means, so I turn it into this. Expand your view of the gospel. That's that illustration that we just went through. That you and I would understand that we, have a, we are great sinners, but we have a greater Savior. That our sin is so egregious against an almighty God that somebody had to die for it, and God loved you so much that he was willing to do so. And then step three, discern and repent of the underlying heart motivations that drive you to sin. I would say this. What's the sin behind the sin? Yeah, I know you lie. We all do. And, and that's a sin. The ninth commandment says don't lie. But what's the sin behind that? 
What part of the gospel are you not believing that causes you to tell some story about yourself in high school that you know is not true just to try to impress somebody else? The fact that you're sharing information that never happened, that's not really the problem. The real problem is there's some part of the gospel deep down in your soul that you're actually not believing. And if all we ever do in regards to sin is kind of sin management and we mow over the top of the weed and we never get down into the root and pluck that thing up, then God's never, God's never going to take that thing away from you. What is the sin behind the sin? What are the underlying heart motivations? to your jealousy and your greed and your insecurity? What part of the gospel do you really not believe? What's the sin behind the sin? And then step four is receive God's forgiveness by faith. I would call this unconditional election. John Calvin taught us this this phrase, unconditional election. Here's what this means. Don't get all hung up in Calvinism, but here's what this means, that God knows you and loves you. That and is really important. There's a lot of people that love you. It's because they don't know you that well yet. That's just true. You know what that's called? Dating. That's what that is. Like, I love her. Well, you don't know her that well. Just give it a minute, all right? It's just true. God knows you and loves you. You've never surprised him. And this is in regard to the sin that you are confessing. Do you know God God did not look back at Memorial Day and go, what in the name of me are they doing? He didn't. He already knew everything that you were going to do and loved you anyway. The best way, what helps me think about it is this way. That God ran a Carfax on you, and you know what? It came back. Broken, too many miles, leaks oil, lemon, 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 car wreck. And he goes, I'll take it. And he paid the full price for you, and he doesn't just buy it and set it in the garage, but he begins a, a restoration process until it is perfect. That God knew exactly what he was getting when he picked you, and he still picked you anyway. That when Jesus says, it is finished, he knew this particular sin that you were confessing in that moment, and it counted for that particular sin. That's what unconditional election is. And then lastly, you got to get strength from the Spirit of God to break free. You see, you've tried to do better on your own. This isn't do better, try harder. This isn't in your own power. Maybe you can manage your sin better. That's beach ball theology. We talk about this all the time. That's when you grab onto your sin and you try to hold it under the waves by your own power. And what the gospel says is Jesus walks by with a pocket knife and he pokes a hole in your beach ball. It's like, what are you doing? I'm holding. Oh, it is finished. That's what it means. And so this time, though, instead of you just trying harder to do better, you're saying, God, I need, I need your strength. Now, how spiritual is this? It spells Jesus so that maybe you could remember it and that we could actually do this, that you would just admit it to a just God, that we would expand our view of the gospel, that we'd say, what is the sin behind the sin? That we would claim God's unconditional election, that he knows me and he loves me, and that we would ask for strength from the Spirit. I think maybe that's what Martin Luther said when he says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of daily repentance. And so we're going to close. We're going to close by doing a few different things. I'm gonna, there's actually going to be like three responses. Three responses. And today is a different day, okay? Today is a day where hundreds of people are going to stand in the ocean and proclaim that Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior. It is a day of public proclamation that people are following after God. And so there may be some of you here right now, and you would say, hey, listen, I've never gotten to this part before. I mean, I've just kind of been checking it out. I thought you had to do better, try harder. That's what I thought. I've never gotten to the place where I've surrendered my life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I always thought that I'd been so bad that I was disqualified or that I could never be good enough. Tim Keller says this. Tim Keller says, 
that Jesus is the only God, that if you find him, will satisfy you. And when you fail him, he'll forgive you. And if you run from him, he will pursue you. Remember I told you there were two competing promises in Judges chapter 2? God simultaneously says, I will never break my covenant with you, and I will judge the wicked. And you say, how in the world can those two things be kept by God? They seem like competing promises. Well, what if God looks at our salvation from this point of view? And how in the world can God keep a covenant and simultaneously judge the wicked? Well, the place where this crosses in human history is for those two things to happen. Somebody had to come to this earth and live a perfect life. And our sins, the payment of our sin, had to be heaped upon his shoulders. That happened one time, and his name is Jesus Christ. And at the cross, when he pushed up on those nail-pierced feet, and Jesus says, it is finished, simultaneously, the justice of God and the love and grace and mercy of God were fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, my question is, do you know him? I would like to give you the opportunity right now today to surrender your life to Jesus and say, okay, I give up. I admit that I'm a sinner. I believe when Christ died on the cross for me, it counted for me, and I want to confess him as Lord and Savior. And normally at our services, this is the time where we dim the lights, we ask everybody to bow their heads, we play cool music, and all of that is on purpose and for a reason to try to remove the distractions. But today is a different day. It is not my message that saves. It is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so today, if there's anybody here in this room, if there's anybody in the sanctuary, if there's anybody in Bay Meadows, and today you are ready to surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, to get out of the cycle of remorse and resolution, and today you want to say, I think when Christ died on the cross, it counted for me, then I want you to stand up right here with the lights on and everybody looking at you. Is there anybody that is ready to stand up and say, I surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Amen. 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 Anybody in the sanctuary, anybody in Bay Meadows, amen. Stay standing. Stay standing. Stay. Amen. 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 With the lights on and people looking and cheering, welcome to the family of God. Amen. Anybody else around the room, amen. Amen. Amen, brother. Welcome to the family of God. At Bay Meadows, welcome to the family of God. Amen. Now, I want you guys to stay standing. Stay standing. There's no magic prayer. What you did, you just demonstrated that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. And I've got good news. One of the things that Jesus commands us to do as a first act of obedience is to get baptized. You can go right now. Not right this second. We're going to sing a song in just a minute. But as soon as this service is over, at every single location, you go to the Connect Center and say, Hi, I stood up, and I want to get baptized today. And they will put a packet of information in your hand. You just run home, get the right clothes on, or just get baptized in what you want to. And then meet us at Hannah Park, and we will baptize you today. And also, I want, I want to tell you this. Is there anybody here that has that has been a Christian? You've surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ, and you would like to get baptized today. If that's you, stand up where you are. Stand up right where you are. Anybody want to get baptized? Great. Just when we're done, go to the Connect Center. Amen. 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 The you, you will profess Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And then all the rest of us, we're all coming. We're going to be there. And we're going to scream our heads off for you. Amen. All right, y'all can be seated. Now, to, to freak everybody else out, because this is an equal opportunity freak out. I don't want to just preach about this, about daily repentance, and then not actually do it. And so here's how we're going to end. It's different than we normally do, okay? Is that um, I'm just going to walk you through these five steps right here. I want you to close your eyes. I want you to bow your heads. And I know that you've been so busy. Some of you have not had 
uh, five minutes along with Jesus all week long. And I want you to believe the gospel for you in this very moment. I want you to believe the gospel for you in this very moment. And right now, whatever sin that has a hold of your life, I just want you to just admit it to a just God. Not excuses, just admit it. It's not a mistake, it's a sin. And admit it. Now expand your view of the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself. Understand a growing awareness of God's holiness and a greater understanding of our own depravity. And be reminded one more time of the grace of God that fills that gap with the cross of Jesus Christ. And preach the gospel to yourself. Now, this is where it gets really hard. What's the sin behind the sin? Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you what only He can reveal to you. What are the heart motivations that lead you to the same regrets, the same remorse, the same promises, the same action? What's going on deep down in there that maybe you've never been able to admit before and admit it and ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to stir up in you the sin behind the sin so that he can root it out. And now rejoice in your unconditional election that God chose you, he picked you, he knew everything that you have done, are doing, and will do, and he picked you and loved you anyway. He knows you and loves you. And celebrate the fact that if you're in Christ, you have been adopted in the family of God, and there is nothing you could do to undo God's unconditional election of you. And then lastly, beg the Spirit for strength like you've never experienced before. You've battled this thing over and over and over, and you know the problem is that you've been battling it. And you ask for strength from the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that brought Jesus out of the grave resides in you. And so you ask for the strength, supernatural strength, to break free from this cycle of remorse and resolution. And that you could actually repent and run to God and be set free. our good and gracious Heavenly Father. God, I thank you and I praise you that you save. God, I thank you and praise you for the men and the women that stood up with every eye on them, everybody watching in all of our locations saying Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. And God, I thank you. I thank you for the gift of repentance. God, may you, by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, by the blood of Jesus, by the love of a heavenly Father, Lord, by the indwelling Spirit, God, may you break us of this cycle of remorse and resolution. And may we repent, may we change direction and come running to you. Prone to wonder, Lord. Lord, I feel it. 
We're prone to leave the God I love. And God, as a church, here's our heart, Lord. Take and seal it. And God, we ask that you seal it for that courts above. Lord, I thank you. I thank you that the gospel doesn't just get us into heaven. But God, the gospel transforms our entire life into the image and the likeness of your son, Jesus Christ. God, I thank you. I thank you for your mighty hand and your mighty work in this place. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, would you please stand as we respond? We're going to respond by singing, singing an old hymn, Come Thy Fount of Every Blessing. Primarily because it has those words, Lord, I prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. And we're going to respond by coming to the altar and praying like crazy. And we're going to respond by bringing our tithes and offerings, our first and our best. Because God first loved us by giving us his best. Let us respond.